have your Bibles and we'll keep them open. Acts chapter 12, that's where we'll be this morning. But from time to time, uh, pastors have to tell on themselves, and this is one of those times. Uh, confession moment. Uh, Jessica and I have recently started watching old seasons of the TV show Survivor. Um, <laughs> it debuted in 2000. And uh, almost 20 years ago now, no, not sure why we never tried it back then, but it's a really interesting show, and, and, and I, know, I know we're super nerdy for admitting that and for actually watching it, uh, but one of the things we've noticed uh, after watching a few seasons of the show is that they always manage to, through the production and the, the way that they film the show and air the show, they're always able to create villains and heroes on the tribes, right? I mean, these are supposedly just normal people from everyday life with different jobs, occupations, um, you know, backgrounds, family situations. But they put them together on these islands, and, and somehow every season the producers know that you'll watch it, you'll engage more, you'll be more interested if they can create some, some villains out of the folks that are kind of jerks. And, uh, and some heroes out of kind of the, the sweethearts of the tribe that serve one another and, and do things for the group. And so that, that theme is, is, is so clear in the seasons, every season, that they've now actually had seasons where they bring back all the heroes and villains and then, you know, plot them against each other. And, uh, and the reality is all of life is, is sort of like this, right? And so in some sense, you have heroes and villains, you have arch rivals. In, in politics, you have Republicans versus Democrats and after thinking about it, that, that would actually be a pretty interesting uh, season of Survivor, right? Put the Democrats in one tribe and the Republicans and watch them go at it. Uh, you, you have in, in, in tech, it's Mac versus PC. In college basketball, at least in North Carolina, it's Duke versus UNC. Um, in, 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 at the dinner table, it's kids versus vegetables. Or at our house, it's Matt versus vegetables. Um, and in terms of eternity, it's the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. And as it pertains this last category it's not even close the rivalry isn't even a rivalry it's not even close and it's foolishness to oppose God it's foolishness to oppose the kingdom of his son that he loves and that's what we see in our text this morning that's what we see in Acts chapter 12 uh, as clear as it can be made to us that there is it's senseless to oppose God and his kingdom Uh, no villain could and no villain ever will and so let me give you a little bit of the, the big picture where we've been in our study through the book of Acts, uh, and then we'll dive into chapter 12 uh, this morning. In chapters 1 through 11, what, we, what we've been seeing uh, each week is that the river of God's grace has widened uh, each week, right? As we walk through those first 11 chapters, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, where Jesus said that the gospel would advance, you'll be my witnesses through the power of the Holy Spirit. We've watched that happen. The Gospels went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we've watched the river of God's grace spill over into places like Ethiopia and Caesarea and even last week Antioch in in Syria. And the Gospel's been advancing. That's chapters 1 through 11. At the end of chapter 12, uh, as we saw last week, you see God's uh, grace, a new chapter in God's story of redemption as, as the, the whole focus of Acts shifts to the Gentile world. Acts chapters 1 through 11, it's been primarily towards Jewish folks. And we've seen the missions go, you know, like I said, to Caesarea, to, to Antioch, but, but primarily it's been focused on the Jerusalem church and Jewish background believers. Not the case. From, from chapter 12 on, uh, the staging ground for mission, for the advance of the gospel, is no longer Jerusalem, it's Antioch. 
And, and we see the whole um, rest of Acts change. The subsequent missionary journeys are from there. They go out from there to the Gentile world. However, before we get to that chapter in Acts, that, that part of God's story of redemption, Luke redirects our focus here one last time in chapter 12 to the Jerusalem church where God does an incredible work on behalf of the church in Jerusalem, on behalf of Jewish background folks. And, uh, and this chapter is dark. It records the, the death of, of James, the martyrdom of James, the imprisonment of Peter, but it also has the death of, of Herod, the persecutor of the church. Um, and so we, have, so we have some death in this chapter. It's, it's also humorous. There's a couple places in this, in this chapter that are very intentionally uh, comical. Luke writes them in a way that you're, you're supposed to chuckle when you read them. Uh, it's intentional. Uh, you also see the continued presence of God with the church in Jerusalem to confirm to them, to assure them that he's with them, regardless of what circumstances come into their, into their lives. And so the point, the takeaway this morning, the sermon in a nutshell, if you will, is that Christians have incredible strength to endure anything. But it's not a strength of their own. It comes from God. We as believers have an incredible strength to endure anything in this life. But it's not a strength that we conjure up in ourselves. It's a strength that comes from God. We see this with the church in Acts chapter 12 um, this morning. As the chapter opens up, we see the church struggling. They have an inability to do anything to, 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 to withstand the opposition, the persecution that's coming against them. Uh, and so if, if we had points this morning in our text, we'll see a couple different things, observations this morning. The first is this, and just the, the five verses that Miss Dallas read for us. In our own strength, we're helpless. In our own strength, we're helpless. Look at verses 1 through 5 again. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now to understand what's going on here in Jerusalem, we need a bit of background. When you heard the name Herod this morning, it probably sounded familiar, but it's easy to get the Herods of the Bible mixed up. Uh, the Herodian dynasty was, was notorious for opposing and attacking the people of God. Um, and they, they ruled over Palestine, the Jewish people, at the will of the Roman emperor. And so they were kind of hired help, government leaders ruling under, uh, under Rome. And Herod that we're reading about here is Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I, and his grandfather was Herod the Great, that if you remember back to Matthew chapter 1, uh, slaughtered all of the infants, right, after the Magi uh, came and visited. This is his granddaddy. So the guy that we're reading about this morning, Herod Agrippa I, that was his grandfather back in Matthew chapter 1. He also has an uncle that we would know about from Scripture, uh, Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 14. So you can see this guy's family, they don't have a, a very good reputation so far. Toward the ends of Acts, we'll, eat, we'll meet uh, Herod's uh, son, Agrippa II. We'll see him uh, later on in our study of Acts. This is a nasty, evil family. Um, just to give you a, a snapshot of their history and what's going on to get Herod Agrippa I to our text this morning, uh, his dad's name was Aristobulus. And Aristobulus was murdered by his own father, uh, Herod the Great, or he murdered his own father, Herod the Great, the same guy that killed all of the babies, the infants, 
because he was afraid of losing control, losing power. So here you have, even in the own family, a lust for power, a lust for control uh, that motivated everything in his life. It was his God. After this, Agrippa uh, was, was um, brought to study, to, to leave, to go to Rome, to study in Rome. And uh, he lived closely with the imperial family, the emperor there. And uh, he was brought up knowing um, the, the royal family. Because of corruption, he flees, he goes, he runs for his life, he escapes, and he returns to, to Rome later, only to be imprisoned then, because he has a smart mouth and he can't keep his mouth shut. His life had hit rock bottom. And just when you think it's over for Agrippa I, uh, and the imperial Tiberius dies. And remember how he grew up with the imperial family, his childhood friend becomes, uh, becomes, becomes emperor and, and, and moved into power. And so then he's given the opportunity not to just get out of prison, but his friend gives him a, a, a gold chain that weighs as much as his prison chains, his prison shackles. And he's given a, a place of leadership and he's a ruler over some Palestinian provinces. Because of his relationships, because of his friends in the right places, those provinces begin to grow, and Herod Agrippa I begins to rule over Judea and Samaria, which is where we find him in our text this morning. He's leading, he's ruling over, at the will of Rome, the people of God, the Christians, the Jews in this area. Herod's uh, first and foremost a politician. You have to know that about him. It'll make sense in our text to know that. When he's with the Romans, he did as the Romans did. When he's in front of the Jews, when he's leading in Palestine, he does like the Jews. The, the Mishnah actually records uh, that, that Herod would uh, approach the Temple Mount during their festivals, during their feasts, and, uh, and then he would get a basket and put it on his shoulder for appearances to look like he's going to make offering unto the Lord as well, worshiping with the Jews. And so you see that he would do anything, lie, kill, cheat, or even worship if it meant political power, if it meant gaining a popularity with the people. However, there's a new religion, Christianity, and, uh, and he saw it as divisive. He saw it as a roadblock to his power, and so being a people pleaser, being a, a glory seeker and a Christ hater, if he could kill some Christians and it would win him favor with the Jews, the people that he was leading, and he could grow in popularity, he would absolutely do it. And so that's where we see him this morning in our text. The first five verses that we've already read show us that in him. Verse 1, he laid violent hands on the church. Verse 2, he kills uh, James, the, the brother of John, with the sword. And these details are important because it shows us that uh, his motivations are reactionary. He sees this, he continues to do it because he realizes it's gaining him some attention and popularity with the people. And so uh, this persecution of Christians, it gives him street cred with the Jews, makes him popular. His approach, though, is a bit different from Saul's, right? You remember Saul as a persecutor of the church. He went house to house looking for Christians to drag them to the courts. Herod's approach is a bit different. He went for the leaders. Went for the, the leaders of the church, thinking if I can kill them, then the whole movement will crumble. We have a power church, but the, the leadership of our church is not its power. The source of our power is not leadership. The source of our power is God himself. And so Herod doesn't realize it yet, but his plan's not going to work. And he went and attacked the leaders, hoping that the church would crumble, but it doesn't. He starts with James. Now, that's another name that should sound familiar to us in Scripture, but that we shouldn't get confused. Just like Herod, there are a couple different Jameses that we, that we know of. Um, this is not uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who will go on to write the book of James that you have in your Bibles, who will go on to be a leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is the other James, James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, uh, the one who was with Peter and John, the inner three, 
the closest friends that Jesus had during his ministry on earth, Peter, James, and John, it's this James. Herod kills him with the sword. That detail is intentional in our text. The Mishnah, again, that ancient Jewish document, would, would go on to tell us that the sword was reserved for killing, executing murderers and apostates. So you see what Herod's doing here. He's not just killing a Christian, which the Jews would celebrate, and, and even our text tells us that they do. It pleased the Jews, verse 3, that he would, that he would kill uh, James, but he does it with a sword. And so what he's doing, as he's killing him, he's calling him a heretic. He's saying for the Jews, yes, this guy is, uh, is running with some, with some off theology, and again, endearing himself to the Jews by not only killing, but calling a heretic uh, James, a very close follower of Jesus. He didn't start there, though. He started with James, but he, uh, he also arrests Peter in verse 3. He saw that it pleased the Jews. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Every part of that verse is important for us because it shows us, yet again, Herod is reactionary. The people celebrate the death of James. Let me do more of that. Let me do more of the thing that's making me grow in popularity. And so he, uh, he takes Peter and he puts him in prison. But the next part of that verse shows us that it was uh, during the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so for Jews, there could be no executions then for their religious reason. Rome didn't care. They could execute you whenever, but the Jews wouldn't do it then. So what does Herod do? He's not dare going to kill Peter then because popularity, right? You can bet, though, even the text tells us that this was his intention. As soon as the feast ends, he'll give him some phony trial and execute him before the people just like he did James. And so he places four squads of soldiers guarding uh, James, which is striking, right? That's shocking. He's not the Incredible Hulk. He's not a, a, some trained assassin. He's not an escape artist. He's a backwoods fisherman. And they put four guards around him and lock him behind bars. And this is the beginning of Acts chapter 12. It's a pretty bleak picture. It's pretty helpless. Pretty hopeless picture. The, the, leaders, the, the, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, men that walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, his personal disciples are being killed off one by one, and slowly it seems like the church will be annihilated. And it's, there's nothing that the church can do. Right and left, people are dying, and they seem powerless in that moment to do anything about it, and that's precisely the point. Through the first five verses, that's the feeling that you should have when you read Acts chapter 12. And sometimes Christians, I'm certain even in this room, there are Christians that feel that exact same way. Right now, that there are, there are people under the sound of my voice that maybe a cancer diagnosis or, or a loved one has been diagnosed with something and you feel absolutely helpless and hopeless to do anything about it in your own strength. Maybe you lose your job and the bills are piling up and you're not sure how you're going to make ends meet. You know, you seem, it seems helpless and you, there's nothing you can do about it. Maybe you're trying to turn a straying son or daughter back to the Lord and it seems there's nothing you can do to help them. Maybe your heart's broken for our country. Abortion rates or murder that we hear about on the news every single night. Police officers getting killed. Sexual immorality that is rampant in our land and you feel helpless and hopeless to do anything about it. It seems like it's darker and darker every day. And yet look what the church in Jerusalem did in verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was, uh, for him was made to God by the church. Can you imagine how silly this looked to his opposition? <laughs> like, really? You're, you're praying? All of this is happening to you, the, the, the Christians, and, and you're praying to some dead God, some man from Nazareth that was, that was killed on a cross? 
Why aren't you planning some rescue mission for your leader? Some kamikaze mission where you go blow the place up and and rescue your leader out. What are you sissies doing praying? You can imagine how helpless and and hopeless this looked to outsiders even. Nevertheless, they continue to pray. And the text in verse, in verse 5 said they, they prayed earnestly. And in the Greek, that, that idea, that, that word, is that they would strain or stretch. That's the, what their prayers look like. They're, they're praying with agony, straining. God, would you do something for our brother Peter? Would you rescue him or make his death uh, swift and, and painless? Would you, would you give him mercy to endure what he's going through? Our prayers would be like that too if we lost one of our own this morning and one of our own were, were sitting in a prison somewhere being persecuted for naming the name of Christ. You can imagine how we would pray. That's how they're praying. God, would you rescue our brother? In our own strength, we're helpless. But we don't live by our own strength. If there's a second point this morning in our text, it's the rest of our text, and it's this. Our strength comes from the Lord. Our strength comes from the Lord. Let's continue with verse 6. The time has come. Their festival has ended, and now Herod and his staff are free to kill Peter. Uh, Verse 6 begins the description of that final night. Look at verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Of all that Peter could have been doing the night before his execution, Peter's sleeping. Look at that picture. He's not trying to escape. He's not, not trying to sweet talk his way out of this or barter with the prison guards. He's not biting his nails with anxiety. He's resting in the arms of his Savior. He's resting in Christ. He's resting in Jesus such that he's asleep, soundly asleep. It's not like Peter didn't know what was heading his way. If you look at verse 11, Peter, as well as all of Jerusalem, all of the Jews, fully expected him. He, he's going to die. He's in prison waiting for this festival to be over with so that he can be killed in the same way that James was. That's what he thought was coming his way. And he's resting. That's some kind of supernatural peace, church family. Let's continue, verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light shone in the cell. And he, that's the angel, struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. So so the angel of the Lord shows up in his cell with him, in the jail cell, and five things happen real quickly in the the short verse that we just read. Number one, the angel brought some sort of light. If you remember back to the shepherd fields at the birth of Christ, the light shone round about them and they were terrified, right? So we know the angels have the ability, have the presence of light. So light shows up. Second thing that happens, he strikes Peter. Seeing how Peter was sound asleep, he probably didn't appreciate that. How many of you ever get woken up in the middle of the night? Maybe a foot to the ribs or something like that. It's not pleasant. That's what Peter is struck by the angel. He wakes up. Third thing, the angel commands him to get up quickly. Fourth thing, Peter's chains miraculously fell off. This is good, friends. Watch watch when his chains fell off. The angel strikes him. Peter is still sleepy-eyed, not sure of even what's going on. We get to verse 9, and Peter still doesn't know what's going on. He's groggy. He just got woken up by being struck by an angel. And so where does our strength come from, church? It's not Peter. He didn't wiggle out of his chains. He didn't break his chains in some Samson-like way. His chains fell off when he absolutely had no idea what was going on. God rescued him. And then the fifth one, I think this was my favorite one, the fifth thing that happens when the angel shows up. Remember, Peter's groggy. He just woke up. He doesn't know what's going on. And the angel reminds him to dress himself. 
Now, the fifth thing that happens in verse 8, continue reading with me. It says, the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. He did so. Angel said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now, this is hilarious to me if you imagine this scene taking place. Don't miss the humor here. Luke is recording these nitty-gritty details about putting on your sandals and your cloak because it's intentional. He's meaning for us to get a laugh at Peter this morning. Saying, you, just, you just picture, right, like somebody that's, that's sound asleep, getting woken up in the middle of the night by an angel in light striking you, kicking you. Get up, Peter, get up, get up. And then you don't have the wherewithal to put on your clothes, and so the, the, the angel is reminding you, Peter, put on, no, 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 on the other foot. Your sandal goes on the other foot. Now, here, put on your cloak. No, 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 that's your loincloth. Put the cloak on. Come on, follow me. And on top of that, there's this hilarious thought that I had as I was reading this. How does Luke get this story, right? Like, the prison guards were there. They're going to die later in the chapter, and, and, and Peter was there. And so I just imagine, you know, Peter's a motor mouth, right? We see him all across the Gospels. He's always running his mouth. He's always saying things, putting his foot in his mouth, saying what he shouldn't say. And I just had to imagine at some point he kind of shared this detail of the story with the night of his rescue with the angel. He had no idea that Luke was going to come back and interview him and put it in the word of God. Like, so Luke comes back, hey, Peter, I heard a part of this story that you haven't been telling everybody. Can you tell me a little more about when the angel had to tell you, remind you to put your clothes on, to get your shoes on and to... I can just imagine this whole conversation. Peter, all right, yeah, so I forgot. I was trying to follow the angel. I left my clothes laying on the ground, and he had to remind me to get dressed. And all of that, Peter's still trying to figure out what's going on. Don't miss, we're fixing to continue reading in verse 9. He still is not sure what's going on. Look at verse 9. He says, And when he went out and followed him, he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left them. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish, a Jewish people were expecting. So you get this picture. His chains fall off. He walks right past the two guards that, that, he's, that he's chained to, that he's sleeping right beside. He walks right past the sentries that are guarding the gate. The gate itself swings open wide. And in his grogginess, Peter knows that even in that moment, even though he's not fully aware of it, he thought it was a vision, he knows God's doing something. He had no strength, no ability. The church had no ability of their, of their own to get Peter out of this, this situation. He was going to die just like his, his friend James. And now he's on the streets of Jerusalem, and he looks around, and just like that, the angel's gone. And he's standing by himself. Listen, this is incredible, church. That this ragtag group of harassed, worn-out Christians that have seen their, their, their deacon, now one of the apostles, die before their very eyes. This group of ragtag, worn-out Christians has greater power than all of Herod's army. The legions of Rome bared the door, barred the door of the prison, and it only took one of God's messengers to liberate this captive. Peter's experience is teaching the battered church the true nature of her strength. It's from God. They have no strength of themselves. They can't deliver themselves from anything, from persecution, from attack, from spiritual attack. But God can, and he does. And we need to hear this this morning, church. No matter how grim, no matter how perplexing, no matter difficult our situation is, God and his angels are present to minister to us, and they are all the time. He can deliver at any time, at any place that he is ready to. And if we were, if we were ever thinking that God cannot understand, does not, would not help, then we've got bad, defective theology, church. 
We've misunderstood the God of the Bible. If we could have our spiritual eyes opened right now in this very moment and see God and his angels ministering and working among us on a daily basis, we would be more dumbfounded than the groggy Peter in his jail cell. It would blow our minds to see what he does on our behalf every day that we have no knowledge of. When Peter makes his way down the streets, he's headed down through the streets of Jerusalem, and he, he, where should I go? It's very obvious to him. He, he knows John Mark. He knows of, of the house here that where there are obviously Christians praying and believing together. He'd been with them. He knew the church. He knew his people. Kent Hughes says, Confusion and joyful humor are all that can characterize these next verses. Let's read together, see what happens as we continue in verse 12. <clears throat> it says, When he, Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in to report that Peter was standing out at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers And then he departed and went to another place. So here's the scene. You have this this girl named Rhoda. She's a young lady. She's a servant at this house. That's one of the ways we know that Mary is is wealthy and generous. She's holding a lot of people in her home. They're having a prayer meeting for their brother. And uh, and she has a servant at the gate. And, uh, And so Peter arrives and he knocks outside the gate. So the way that this home would have been set up, there would have been a courtyard that had a gate to get into the courtyard and then a house where the door would have been on the house. And so Peter goes up to the to the courtyard gate. And, uh, and he's knocking to come inside. This tells us he's still out on the street, right? If he's at the courtyard gate. Rhoda recognizes his voice, but in her astonishment, in her joy, she doesn't let him in. She runs back to the house to tell all of the church family, hey guys, good news, Peter's outside. But she leaves him out on the street. That's the last place Peter needed to be, right? If you think about his situation, he's exposed out on the street from the guards that he just left at the prison. And then the rest of the believers, they're just in there that night praying. And the believers that they, they're, they're told about Peter, they continue in a night of, of poor decision making. They don't believe Rhoda, which is the second crazy and, and, and humorous part of this. They tell her she's crazy. You've lost your mind. And so you get the picture, right? You have a room full of God's people praying, but struggling to believe that God could do exactly what they're praying and asking him to do, right? Does that ever sound like us, church family? That we would pray for God to do something, but we really don't believe it. We're just going through the motions because we feel like we should be praying about it because we have a duty to pray about it, but we don't expect him to do it. Pray for God to save the lost. Pray for God to save our community. Pray for God to do a revival and, and, and bring revival to our hearts that it would fan it flame across this county. Do we, do we believe that he could do it? Do we expect that he'll do it? They try to shush her. Tell her to be quiet. They keep insisting. It's not really him. In fact, it's probably his his angel. He's probably already dead. It's not really him. Hush. This servant girl, she keeps insisting, hey, it's it's really Peter. I heard his voice. I know it was him. Shh, Rhoda, hush. Be quiet. Can't you see we're praying? Don't interrupt us. Even if you're interrupting to tell us that it's the thing that we're praying for that it's out at the door, don't interrupt us. You see the adults are in here praying. 
And there, the whole time, out in the darkness, exposed to danger, stands Peter. And he just keeps knocking. And you can imagine, Peter, you know Peter's personality from the rest of the Gospels. You can imagine he's knocking. He's probably trying to be quiet, but he's doing it angrily. And every now and then he probably pauses and he probably whispers, but with frustration in his voice, Rhoda, let me in. <laughs> you got me out here on the street. Let me in, Rhoda. And then finally the, the believers come to the door. They open the door, and the believers in this text continue making bad decisions. They see him, and they begin celebrating. And apparently they get so loud that Peter has to remind them, Hey, guys, I just got out of prison. I know you're excited, but keep it down a little bit. Let me tell you what just happened. So he explains to them everything that happened in the jail cell, and he gives glory to God. He gives glory to God. Again, church, reminding us, where does our strength come from? It's not our own. It comes from the Lord. Peter reflects that in his testimony. He reflects that as he shares with believers. Hey, y'all be quiet. Let me tell y'all a story about what God just did. That should be our response when we see God working in our lives. Maybe not the hush part because we're not standing out on the streets in Jerusalem with guards looking for us. But, hey, church family, let me tell you what God just did. Let me tell you what God just did. It's not in me. It's not my strength. It's not my wits. It's not my wisdom. It's not my might. It's God's. He did this. Let me tell you what he did. That's what Peter does for him. And then we're given in chapter, 20, or in chapter 12, we're given the response. We give, we're given Herod's response when he sees all of this unfold. Starting in verse 18, it says, Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for the, uh, him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. One final scene that we have we're told that, that Herod goes down to Caesarea, but it's not just that he goes to Caesarea. We're given one more glimpse of Herod in this chapter. And in this final scene, church family, as we've been saying all morning, our strength doesn't come from, the, from ourselves. It comes from the Lord. We're, we're shown this even more clearly in the demise and the death of Herod. Because what happens to Herod in these next few verses, there's no way the church could have done it. They couldn't have gotten close enough to, to, the, to the emperor's right-hand man that's ruling over them to inflict any harm. Or they've even, even if even they wanted to. So what happens here is clearly only the Lord's doing. That's something that the Lord could have done and does on behalf of his people. Let's continue reading verse 20. It says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give, give God the glory and was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Here's what happened to Herod, the man who tried to match strengths with Almighty God. He was eaten by worms and died. This is what happened to a man who tried to oppose the king of the universe who create, created everything that there is by mere words. He became lunch for some worms. His corpse was a worm-eaten piece of ruin. And the takeaway here is that you oppose the Lord and you lose. And so let's dig in here and, and, and explain a little bit what's, what's going on here. Tyre and Sidon are, are inland, a uh, couple of, of cities uh, that Herod ruled over. And Herod had maneuvered a political agreement here, a relationship whereby all parties were, uh, were happy with this exchange of food and goods. And in, in honor of Herod, because he had done this, they were going to hold a, a celebration in his honor. Uh, the historian Josephus 
gives us an account of these events. Our, our New Testament text here in Acts, along with what uh, Josephus shows us in his histories, gives us a picture of this event. Herod uh, parades himself around in this famous arena in Caesarea. And in our text, it says he puts on his royal robes, and, and Josephus, it, it tells us that uh, these robes were glistening in silver, and it was an attempt to appear as a god, a living human god, before these people. And it works. Even in verse 22 in our text, it says that they cried out, uh, the voice of, uh, the, of a god, not of a man. The voice of a god, not of a man. So they're, they're shouting this empty praise toward Herod, and he loves it. He's just reveling. He loves the fact that this popularity is building He might even be foolish enough to try to go against Rome one day because he thinks he's the stuff. They're calling him a god. And then verse 7, which says that angels struck him. This is where it gets interesting. We know from, uh, from Josephus and from our text this morning, verse seven, uh, our, sorry, in verse 7 it says that, 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 that angel struck Peter to wake, to wake him up. And then here in verse 23, some divine poetry going on in Acts. That same Greek word is used here when the angel struck Herod, but for a much different reason. In verse 7, he struck Peter to wake him up. In verse 23, an angel struck Herod to take him out. And, and Dr. Luke Josephus records that it was a death, uh, stomach-related issues, that he was in severe pain, and he died a miserable death. Dr. Luke here, a medical doctor, by the way, that's his background, he makes a much more accurate diagnosis in verse 23. The Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. In other words, he tried to oppose God. He was a villain. He tried to go up against the king of the universe, and this is where Herod's life ends, being eaten by worms. And in contrast, look at verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. So where does our strength come from, church? It comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. And this should comfort us this morning, church family. This should comfort us that that, that this morning, a great opponent to the work of Christ is in the grave. But the truth of God goes marching on. Someone who would try to come against God became lunch for these worms and the word of God continues and and Christ continued to build his church and the gospel went forth and God increased and multiplied the people of God by the word of God. So again, our main idea today, John Piper summarizes best in talking about this chapter. If we stay with Jesus, we win. If we oppose Jesus, we lose. It's that simple, church family. If you're not here, if you're here and you're, you're not a believer, it's that simple. On that day when you breathe your last or on that day when Christ returns, which side will you be on? If you're on Christ's side, you win. If you're not on his side, you lose. There's no other way. There's no middle ground here. That's what we see in Acts chapter 12, and it's what we see in our own lives as well. The time that we have left, I want to take some time and make some application, draw out some application for those of us uh, believers today living in, in our culture and in our world, in our day and age, the church today. How do, we, how do we take a text like this and learn from it, grow from it, and have Christ formed in our hearts? So first thing, first application here. We will face opposition, but God's strength is sufficient. We will face opposition, but God's strength is sufficient. It may not like a sword, like it did for James. It may not like prison bars like it did for Peter, but we will face opposition. Jesus tells us this himself in John chapter 16, verse 33. You will have suffering in this world, Jesus says, but be courageous. I have conquered the world. You will suffer. He gives us the cold, hard truth. You will suffer. But he also gives us the comforting, glorious gospel. I've overcome the world. I've conquered everything. The serpent's head is crushed. 
Death was defeated by a vacant tomb. Jesus wins. That's the hope that we have. Persecution nor death can stop the powerful gospel of Christ. He's ruling and reigning at this moment at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. His power is sufficient for whatever opposition you will face in this life. Do you believe that, Christian? Not just in your your head, not just because it's the thing we would say because we're at church. Do you believe that? His power is sufficient for any opposition that you'll face in this life. In the 4th century, on the hills of much of this persecution, Jerome, one of the church fathers, said this, The church of Christ has been founded by the shedding of its own blood, not that of others. By enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. This is why the, the prosperity gospel is so silly and lacks truth. Someone that would say it's, it's not God's will that you would suffer. It's God's will that you would prosper and be wealthy. That tweet went out this week from one of these prosperity gospel preachers. It's not true. God has used persecution to fan the flame of the gospel all over the world. You will face opposition, believer. But take heart, he's overcome the world. Where the world sees a martyr, God sees a missionary that he'll use to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Paul reminds us of that. That nothing lost is wasted. For me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. And listen, friends, James believes that too this morning. Though he suffered at the the edge of the sword, James breathed his last. And in that next moment, Christ welcomed him into paradise with open arms. And I can guarantee you, James would have had it no other way. He would have traded it for nothing. If he could have went back, he wouldn't have. I'm in paradise. I'm with Christ. So take heart, believer. You will face opposition, but God's strength is sufficient. Second application this morning. God's sovereignty is sure, and so you can rest in it. God's sovereignty is sure, and so you can rest in it. God works in mysterious ways. And we know that his thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, point in case, in our text this morning, why does James die and Peter live? Why does John have to mourn and grieve the agony of seeing his brother James slaughtered with the sword, and yet Andrew doesn't have to shed a tear when his brother Peter escapes from jail, from prison? Why is that? We're not given those answers, but God is sovereign. We don't know. We know that, that Jesus foretold of James' death in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 39. Jesus said that this would happen, but we're not told why. And surely the church was praying for James just like they were for Peter. They were praying for, for one of Jesus' inner three, James, just like they were praying for the other of Jesus' inner three, Peter. And yet James died and Peter lived. John, James's brother, lived to be an elderly man. Why is that? We're not given the answers. Sometimes believers suffer and suffer terribly, and sometimes God delivers and delivers miraculously, and we're not told why. We don't know the we can't predict the ways of God, but we can trust them. We can trust his ways. He's sovereign and he's good and he can be trusted. And we bring that over into our lives. We bring that over into our day and age. And we may not be looking at a jail cell, but we can wrestle with the sovereignty of God and still trust a good and loving God. Sometimes, would-be great parents cannot have biological children. And terrible parents keep getting pregnant and having babies. Sometimes, God answers prayer by healing people of cancer. And sometimes, He doesn't. Sometimes, hurricanes come and the wicked seem to be spared and the righteous lose everything. And we're not told why. But we can trust a sovereign God who's good and who loves us. 
while these trials bring grief and real grief. You know, I think, I think we often think about God's sovereignty like that, like we trust God's sovereign, we know eternity, and so the things that happen on this, wor- uh, on this earth are, are just, they're, they're silly and they don't matter. That's not true. These things hurt and hurt deeply, and there's real grief and real pain that we experience in this earth. We're not minimizing that. We're just saying in light of God's sovereignty, in light of his goodness, we can trust Christ even when it hurts. These trials are not a sign that he's displeased with us. It's certainly not a sign that he's, he's left us or abandoned us. God calls us to trust him even when life hurts. Why? Because he's good and he's wise and he's sovereign and he loves us. We must remember he's given us his own son to show that to us. Tony Marita in his commentary says, when he gets to this point of the text, he says, God doesn't promise to give us an explanation for everything, but he gives us a promise that changes everything. I'm going to say that again because that's, that's really good. I didn't come up with it, so Tony Marita right here, folks. God doesn't promise to give us an explanation for everything, but he has given us a promise that changes everything. When you trust Christ, it doesn't mean that you're going you're gonna to have it all figured out and that you're not going to experience hurt, and that when you do experience hurt, you're going to have it all figured out and have a reason for it. But he gives you his son so that you can face it. He will raise us from the dead. He will let us dwell with him eternally. He has entered into our suffering and has taken the ultimate injustice on himself, on the cross, for our behalf. He's been raised from the dead to show us that that's what awaits us for those of us who are in him. Friends, you can face anything with a sovereign God who loves you like that. Hold on to that reality in the midst of your suffering. It's enough. Glory is coming. Third thing, third point of application this morning. Prayer works. Prayer works, and so pray. One may question the church's response here. When, when James dies, Peter goes to, to jail. It seems like Peter's about to die too, and they, they go into John Mark's mama's house, and they just start praying. It just seems like passivity. Why not take up arms? Why not start a protest, right? If Herod, think about this, if Herod is really just trying to, to keep Palestine quiet so that big brother Rome doesn't step in and remove him as governor, if he just wants to keep the peace so that, that everything continues for him, then it seems like a riot would have been a pretty good idea. You start enough protest and maybe he'll budge. Maybe he'll let Peter go. They don't do that. While force and outcry are sometimes appropriate, prayer is always first and the best response. And that's what they do. And prayer is the church's weapon, and it is far from being passive. Prayer is the the way that believers in this text essentially wage war against the Roman government. It isn't retreat. It isn't option B. It's an act of placing dependent confidence on the sovereign God who hears the prayers of his people and rules over this world and is in control of all things. Friend, prayer is not a backup plan. John Piper again says that prayer is like a wartime walkie-talkie, that we're in a spiritual battle and the church is at war, and so they call up their commander, the same commander who has shut the mouth of lions, who has delivered the, the armies of God from massive armies, who has delivered them from Pharaoh and humiliated him and his army, who has broken chains and opened prison doors. That's who we're talking to when we call, call on the God of the universe. That's who we have access to. So how do you regard prayer, believer? Is it your knee-jerk reaction to go to God no matter what comes your your way, no matter what uh, circumstances are in your life, no matter how glim or how bleak things look? We can learn from the church in Jerusalem in this church. The kingdom of this world uses physical weapons. The church uses the weapon of prayer, and we see who won in the text. We see the outcome. We see the outcome. So let's be a praying people, church. Let's pray to him now.